today's panel. Um, uh, this is the Publishers Weekly panel, and uh, my name is Calvin Reed. I'm the senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. Uh, you know what uh, people used to call the Bible of the book publishing industry. That's mean, we are the trade journal for book publishing. And uh, one of the things I do is cover uh, comics and graphic novels in the book trade. Uh, we cover the whole comics industry, including the direct market, but obviously book for uh, Publishers Weekly, where we have a specific and very particular interest in the book trade. And, um, you know, one of the things that I probably talk about too much is how the book trade has been um, tremendous in actually transforming the comics market, um, uh, broadening the comics market, and broadening it for, for everybody from all the genres, including the superhero genre. So, uh, but today we're going to do it, we're, we're going to talk a bit about uh, one, more, one more thing. Uh, I also am the co-host of a weekly podcast uh, called um, uh, More to Come. It's the PW uh, Comics World uh, weekly podcast, uh, along with my uh, two co-hosts, uh, the fabulous Heidi McDonald, the uh, editor-in-chief of The Beat, and our, our podcast producer, uh, Kate Fitzsimmons. And you can, uh, you can get us on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, and then we're also at publishersweekly.com slash comics. So we're on every week gabbing about comics in the book trade in one way or another. Um, and uh, so check us out. All right, so today we're going to be talking about uh, crowdfunding and ethics, uh, crowdfunding ethics and evolution. And we've got a great panel for you. Um, very briefly, I mean, I think that crowdfunding, I mean, we're probably going to be talking quite a bit about Kickstarter, but really crowdfunding in general just has been a tremendous, had a tremendous impact on the publishing, on publishing across the board. Um, I think in particular it's had a, it's just opened up options for artists. Uh, far beyond anything they've had before. Uh, and I also think that, you know, for established publishers, small publishers, and even larger publishers, it's, it's, it's opened up a new way to reach audiences, to fund projects, uh, to be experimental, uh, and, and overall to, um, to welcome more voices, more people, more views, more kinds of art. Uh, uh, to get them in front of the reader, but also in fact to bring them even into the mainstream uh, publishing industry. I think comics have been really tremendous in this, in this regard. Um, I, I know very recently uh, Kickstarter hit what, what $100 million in pledges just to the general publishing sector. Um, uh, comics makes up a significant portion of that. I think comics projects uh, have one of the highest success Rates. I think one of our panelists can, can back me up or, or correct my errors a little bit later on. So uh, I'm just trying to set the stage. But yeah, uh, but one of the other things that has come along as Kickstarter has uh, risen to pro uh, prominence is that uh, you know there's, there, there's always some problems that with uh, with new media platforms uh, disrupting the way things are done. New issues uh, come up. Uh, there are unexpected results, unintentional consequences, uh, um, peculiar legalities, uh, and you know, and also results that perhaps regulators didn't anticipate. So we're gonna we're gonna address that issue, address problems, address how to how publishers and uh, can protect themselves. So let's get right to it, and I'm going to introduce our panel. Starting to my left. Uh, Joshua Dillon, also panelists, correct me, I did these uh, introductions really quickly. Uh, she's a brief, so you can, you can correct any errors that I may have uh, unfortunately had. To my left, Joshua Neal, uh, co-publisher of Beehive Press, former retailer, former co-owner of Philadelphia's Locust Moon store, no longer with us, but much, much missed. Um, also, uh, former 
co-publisher of Locust Moon Press, uh, a very interesting um, uh, business model prefigure to what you do now. Uh, he is the current co-publisher of Beehive Press, and he's organized many uh, very successful Kickstarter campaigns. To his left, Kel McDonald, a uh, uh, longtime uh, comics artist among the first to launch uh, comics Kickstarter campaigns. Um, she's launched more than, I think, 16 successful no, campaigns. I've done 14. 14. 14. Okay. Spike more, exactly 14. Uh huh. Spike is not 17. Well, Spike is not 17. All right, exactly. Kill is here. She's, she's done her share of successful Kickstarter <laughs> campaigns and a wide range of, 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 of publications. Uh, to her left, uh, Camilla Zhang, uh, recently, or fairly recently, um, uh, hired as, as Kickstarter's comics outreach lead, and she works to support the development and completion of comics and graphic novel campaigns on Kickstarter. And to her left, uh, attorney Jeff Trexler, uh, a longtime writer on the beat um, uh, about legal issues around comics and publishing and intellectual property, and he's going to talk a little bit about the new legal land regulatory landscape of, of crowdfunding. So, um, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm, as they talk, I'm gonna go through some of the projects that they've, they've, uh, uh, that our publishers have put up. But let's let's get to it here. And what are we gonna start off with? Is I think we'll we'll start off with Camila, just to give us a background on what she does and um, how she works at Kickstarter and a little bit about her backgrounds. So it's uh, this is this is something new, and I think it's a, it, it indicates the the, the key uh, impact that comics have had on Kickstarter. Um, so, I started my love for comics, you know, as a kid watching that and getting the series, blah, blah, blah. Uh, fast forward, um, you know, I got a new bunch of NPC comics uh, in college, and then I was like, wow, this is awesome, I work in this industry. Um, so, from there, I went on to work at Marvel um, as a contract coordinator, so I got involved with brand licensing. And that taught me a lot about business. Um, basically, teaching you how sausage is made, and it was it was eye-opening. It was a little disappointing, but um, ultimately very very um, educational. And then I took that and I went into DC Comics and became an assistant editor, um, unofficially assistant editor. I was uh, assistant to Mark Chiro, who was the VP of Mark Chiro, and he did. I don't know why, but I guess he has a really great reputation for being an editor, and so I have to assist edit um, the Full Washington, the entire Full Washington series, uh, that in black and white, um, Batman, Death by Design, which was a Batman flagship kid, um, and we brought my age here, excellent work, um, and Batman and all by Lee Bernayo. Um, so it was, it was a really great experience. Um, Prior to that, I was doing volunteer associate editor work for a, a kind of like a nonprofit called Reading the Pictures, and that was all about educational, using comics as an educational medium. Um, so, anyway, anyway, my like, experience is pretty broad. Um, and then I went to work at Squarespace as a copywriter. So, there, at Squarespace for about two and a half years, um, and I did for a half day, I tried to do a um, comic template because I was like, hey, you know, Squarespace users, they probably need like a cool web, web comic template. Um, but anyway, so I never strayed far um, from comics even when I was just kind of working in tech. And so 
uh, or and, well, carrying a publishing category out in more in many ways uh, by using the general publishing, putting that with comics. So it was a more of an informal um, category, just the, the publishing for me. But it's interesting now that they really are focusing at Kickstarter on comics in a, in a very big way. So um, yeah, I'm not sure where the numbers come from, but just from my count, they've been going up pretty steadily ever since. Yeah, they've been, yeah. I mean, I think off the top of my head, like, like last year was 20%. We had 20% more successful projects than our previous. We need a record, basically. So, by 20%, that's really big. Um, so, it's like comparison to 2017 to 2012. So, across that five years, 2010 to 20%, yeah. it seems like also, Margo is one person and she does all the publishing, including journalism. So it makes sense to have one person at least yeah. do the comics category. And I also, yeah, and I also <laughs> included journalism in my informal publishing category also. All right, let's jump to Kelly. All right, as an individual artist, um, I mean, give a better, a more a, a, a view of your background than I gave. But and then I just, I am curious, how has it impacted you as an individual artist? So I was the third comment on Kickstarter. Which is why I <laughs> there you go. Because, uh, there you go. If those were included in your numbers, because it was um, multiplex um, movie and gag strip and spiked in pork prep, and then right. I Kickstarter. Yeah, sure. Yeah, like, everything's digital, so I'm just going to send you a link, fulfillment, 
complete. Hooray, we're done. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Kickstarter, easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so that one, that one was interesting because the trade-off is, yes, the filming was much easier, but promotion was a lot harder because people want the physical they objects. They want stuff, yeah. So those ones just barely made goals. So, like, if someone asks about it, I'm like, so you can do it, just make sure the goal is smaller. Um, which also makes sense since you're making not making a physical product. So what's the most money you make? Um, in cautionary fables and fairy tales, the Asian edition made fifty five thousand uh, dollars. Cautionary fables and fairy tales is a series I run where each volume is folklore from a different continent. The first one was Europe. The second one up on the screen was Africa. Asia was the third one. The fourth one just finished on Kickstarter. Uh, it was Oceania. And it raised uh, $46,000. So those have been the most successful because they're anthologies. So it's not just me promoting the book, it's everyone else in the book. Um, and Camilla promoted the OPL one, so that was nice. Like, the outreach at work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that works well because it's like a larger team of people promoting the book. And the way you get contributors to be more invested in promotion is they get a page rate for the anthology but they also get like a bonus based on if the Kickstarter makes more money. So the goal was $32,000 and I said at $35,000 everyone gets an extra $50. At $40,000 everyone gets an extra $100 and so on and so forth. So um, now everyone you got like some extra money. I've got more questions for you, but I am curious though, because um, you're published by conventional publishers too, right? Yes. Yeah. So, do you go back and forth between? Do you can you so use this Kickstarter? This is the like trying to make the most money out of telling the stories I want to tell. Yeah. Um, and I recently posted a blog post on my website that is comparing the numbers of my book published by Dark Horse versus the book that I uh, printed through Kickstarter, and I made more money off the one I self-published through Kickstarter. All right. So, here, here. You hear that, Dark Horse? <laughs> I'm sure they love that. All right. Well, I read it to be like, yeah. uh, so what can I cannot say? Like, there sure. are a few things they told me to remove because, like, your contract actually says you're not supposed to say yeah. that. So they read it. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. All right, Josh, um, a little bit about more about your background and then just how you've been able to work with Kickstarter. Yeah, well, so as you mentioned, Calvin, uh, I, I started as a retailer in Philadelphia. I opened a comic shop called Locust Moon uh, back in 2009. Um, and so sort of through that shop, the shop became sort of a hub for cartoonists and artists and people making comics and creative people in Philly. And so we sort of had this whole community of all these people who were doing really interesting things in comics. And sort of born out of that community... Um, was uh, this sort of uh, very small press publishing company called Locust Moon Press, um, where we started off doing mostly anthology projects, where we would, it was essentially groups of our friends who would come up with some concept. The first book we did was actually a book for Dark Horse. It was called uh, Once Upon a Time Machine, uh, and it was a collection of uh, classic fairy tales in sci-fi, futuristic settings. Um, and then uh, the second big book we did was uh, was this one up here, Little Nemo Dream, Another Dream, um, 
which was like a giant oversized tribute uh, to Windsor McKay. So you got like 140 of the greatest cartoonists and illustrators working today to do their own uh, takes on the classic Little Nemo in, in Slumberland strip. Their own this is where of... I met Josh. Yeah. This is where I come in. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, blew me away. Right. Blew well, me away. I think we were hauling around a giant you were, portfolio. You were bringing the, the original drawings around. Yeah, yeah. To, like show people at parties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was really. Yeah. Um, it was a questionable behavior in retrospect. You know, but it worked. It, yeah, it worked. right. Uh, but it was, I mean, it's a book we're very proud of. It won some Eisner and, and Harvey Awards, and uh, the, just the contributors are absolutely amazing. There's so many of them, and there's so many geniuses in that book, and it was built around the sort of love of the history of cartooning and respect for Windsor McKay and wanting to pay tribute to this classic early newspaper strip. Um, and so we had the shop for six years. Uh, we closed in 2015. Um, and we had done a few of these projects at, as Locust Moon Press. Um, and sort of when we closed, I transitioned to, into a new company called Beehive Books, which is sort of based on the successes we had with these big art books as, as Locust Moon. Um, and Beehive is more of a sort of graphic arts publisher. We do a mix of comics and graphic novels and monographs and artist books. We do a lot of stuff in sort of strange and novel formats. Um, and uh, so what we really focus on is stuff that's sort of a little bit off off the beaten track, uh, both formally and in, in terms of content. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, the only thing that makes this company possible at all is, is Kickstarter. Because what, what excites me about publishing is uh, trying to create a platform for work that might not otherwise exist. I mean, there's honestly, there's not enough money in comics publishing to make it worth just trying to compete for the hot book, you know? Like, if you want to make money, go do something else. But it excites me to, to try to do books that might not otherwise have a, a natural outlet. So that's part of why we're drawn to both, like, strange formats, giant oversized books, newspapers, uh, uh, but also just artists with, like, really fascinating visionary approaches, uh, marginalized voices, people, uh, things that things that traditional publishing says doesn't work often are the things that work best through crowdfunding. Uh, that's, re- that's really a great point. I mean, markets that maybe uh, are, are <coughs> presumed not to exist yeah. by conventional publishers, you can find them. Right. Yeah. And that's what so many people have proved through Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and uh, you know you see these projects explode, and it's because there was a pre-existing audience there that was that was not being served. Um, and so yeah, that's sort of that's what excites us about you know it's the medium is the message in, in some way. Like the, um, the the fact of crowdfunding allows you to create these audiences and these these markets for these totally <coughs> fascinating projects. And so um, that's kind of what we've been trying to focus on as Beehive. Mention a couple of the specific. Well, I mean, you mentioned Little Nemo, but uh, a beehive project. Yeah, so the, the first uh, big beehive project we did uh, was a huge monograph on uh, an artist named Herbert Crowley, who's like a completely unknown, forgotten, uh, early 20th century uh, cartoonist and fine artist and illustrator who was sort of perched between the worlds of like avant-garde fine art and comics and commercial illustration. Uh, but his work was completely forgotten and unknown. Um, I worked with uh, an author named uh, Justin Dewar, who was an artist in Philly who just developed an obsession with Herbert Crowley and did like a 10-year research project, digging up every piece of art and interviewing every living member of his family. Um, And so it's this really huge, ambitious, uh, 
high-end art book about this artist who has no built-in audience. You know, there are no Herbert Crowley fans who are going to buy this book. Um, so that's, that's part of what's exciting to me. I, I sometimes refer to what we do as quixotic publishing. Um, like I like the idea of uh, projects that seem a little starry-eyed and how do you make them actually possible. Um, my business partner said, let's just stop calling it quixotic publishing because it makes it sound, sound goofy. Um, but uh, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, yeah, and then so we have a, you were just showing, uh, the, the follow-up to the Crowley book is another monograph about another early 20th century illustrator. It's by Harrison Cady. Who did these beautiful, hyper-detailed magazine illustrations just overflowing with life and this crazy sense of humor. Uh, so a part of what we're doing is trying to uh, sort of reclaim some, like, great forgotten voices from, from the past um, and people whose, whose work really should, should be remembered. I mean, as, as Locust Moon, we got really interested in comics history, doing these books about Windsor McKay. We did a book about Will Eisner. Um, but with B.I., I've become even more interested in, in sort of digging deeper into the, the, the voices that people don't necessarily know um, and trying to, you know, create the definitive book on this artist to say this is the historical resource uh, on, on this person. Um, it may be Mitchell Lynn. And then, yeah, I was, just, I was just about to say, uh, here I have it. I'm just going to show you guys. Lab is a uh, it's a newspaper format annual magazine we're doing with the cartoonist from Old Wimberley, um, absolutely brilliant cartoonist. Um, so it's a giant broadsheet newspaper format, and it's a mix of like articles and comics and illustrations, all on the theme of representations of blackness in science fiction and pop culture. And so it's Ron and a number of other people. Uh, write, writing these essays about sort of how aesthetics works in politics and how representations of different identities can be used to oppress and to liberate and explaining sort of his approach to his own art making and uh, how he thinks this stuff should be handled and dealt with. And then also, it's really putting your money where your mouth is because he's talking about aesthetic strategies and then making comics in the same package and saying, here's my work and here's what I believe. Here's, here's what I think is, is important to do. Um, and so it's another project that's just such like a product of one brilliant person's mind. Um, it's an unusual format, so it doesn't have necessarily the most natural outlet in, in bookstores or comic shops. Um, but it, we did really well with it uh, through through Kickstarter, and I'm just excited about uh, continuing to uh, to explore uh, this um, we've had some some Kickstarters that did really well. Uh, we did we, the the biggest one we did was for a line of books called uh, Illuminated Editions, where we're taking uh, classic fiction, um, like uh, the three books we were launching it with were The Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde, The Island of Doctor Moreau, and uh, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. And we're getting like today's best illustrators to do uh, sort of lavishly illustrated editions of them. Um, we raised like 170 thousand for that one. Uh, for Little Nemo, we raised 154. Um, for the Crowley book, we raised like 100 some. Um, but it's been—I mean, it's been great. It's like the—it's the only thing that makes this business possible at all. I'd be in a totally different career, I think, if it wasn't for crowdfunding. I mean, I, I do think it's fascinating the, the way that this this platform can be integrated into your business model. So anyway, great job. Okay, so great stuff. Um, amazing uh, books uh, brought to market that probably wouldn't be published otherwise. Identifying. Uh, supporters, getting them involved in the publishing process. But then, uh, but let's hear from Jeff about 
uh, I mean, about the problems, but also I think you have uh, you can talk about how publishers can protect themselves in this yeah. environment. And, and I know, you know when you hear a lawyer, you think, uh, okay, well, this is somebody who's having intelligence and they sue everybody. That's, that's not the kind of law that I do. I'm a transactional lawyer. Uh, I work with anything from small and emerging companies to multi-billion dollar corporations in the fashion space and also in the culture space. There's comments, video games, movies, anything related to that, anything related to culture. And so many people in comments today, they're not limiting themselves to one thing, they're really looking for license. You talk about your licensing in Marvel, for example, uh, and that's part of the way I do it as well. So, um, Kickstarter, passion uh, on a number of, uh, a number of these, Indiegogo movies is increasingly important for today, compost, and, uh, and cross uh, culture. And along the way, of course, there's been a number of issues that have come up that are reminders that, in a way, there's sort of signposts for you to think about if you were organizing some kind of crowdfunding. Uh, there's some successes that have done things very well, and also these uh, failures. You know, some kind of values that they kind of talk about how uh, failure is a teacher because not everything in Silicon Valley succeeds, and you want to put this down. Well, failure really is a good teacher in here. When things go, go south, as they say, uh, it can help you structure your own vehicle a little bit better. So I want to talk about a few examples, few tips, and then maybe when we're going through the day, anybody wants to ask some questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and we will we will get to get some okay. questions from the audience. So I'm going to do this really, really quickly. It's going to be like a law school seminar in or team Two minutes, so. <laughs> uh, uh, one thing, one one thing that called attention to recently was the Universal Pentagon experience. I don't know if you mentioned. Yes, you've heard this. Uh, oh, sorry, you should you should have invited that because you're inviting a platform. Yeah, you're inviting a platform, and if you've ever read that, I would strongly recommend that you're going to get into this. Read the Kickstarter terms and conditions, particularly number three and number four on what not to do. How a project works. They are a model of the form and, and getting people to understand how to do things right and what not to do in running crowdfunding. Um, they're not written in these. They're written very plain language, clear, good piece of advice. And if you remember anything from my few minutes here, is we the Kickstarter terms and conditions, particularly number three and four. Um, but Universal Bankcon is a classic example. So many times when you start bills, Think, oh, there must be fraud, it was a scam. But often, really, what happens is just people's uh, grasp exceeds their reach. Their dreams, their vision exceeds what they are able to do. And sometimes they just can't get it done at all. Another common problem is they have a budget to create, to, to, they can't take something to scale. They can create a product or they can get a service somewhere along the line, but then they can't meet the demand for it. Um, and it just becomes unprofitable for them, or even impossible for them to fulfill, uh, beyond just being one or two or three people, or a very small number of people who want to help. Uh, and the Universal Fancom, what's interesting about that is they took it upon themselves to pay out of their own pockets to make up for what people lost. Um, and it was, a, it was a great term of destruction. You know, when you're going to do a Kickstarter, you're exposing yourself to life, or you're exposing yourself to complaints. One thing I think a number of people haven't thought about is Selling something for several thousand dollars without the union dashboard. Uh, creating a legal entity like an LLC or a corporation is relatively cheap. You uh, keep the books the right way. Uh, you can protect you from personal liability. You can put in a budget for insurance if things go wrong. 
then uh, you may even have insurance to be funded by that. Can I just jump in for a second? I just want to make sure everyone understands that Universal Fan Comics, this is an attempt to fund uh, a, a comic, yeah. a, you know, a comics yeah. convention yeah. using crowdfunding. Yeah, they had creators invited to come. I think it, it ended up falling part of the hotel payment. Yes, it did. The reservation you have to pay yeah. uh, for a number of rooms. Uh, and, and that's another tip. Read those contracts. Because I've actually worked with, with small organizations that were trying to do ambitious conventions, and I've been able to negotiate at some hotels that they can reserve certain things without having to pay as much as FanCon had to pay.
No, okay. Um, well, let's get some questions from the audience, too. I, I've got some more questions, but let's see if we have some out here. So we've come up, we've got a great panel, we've got a lawyer, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a Kickstarter representative, artists who have done all kinds of campaigns. Got some questions? Right down front. <clears throat> so I guess this is a question more for maybe creators. So I've been participated in some Kickstarters, some successful, some not successful. Um, but I have to admit my, my patronage has waned recently just because on the unsuccessful ones, what I often find is not a lot of closure from the creators and from the fans. And I think one theme I see that's split down the middle at the end is, is it really a pre-order or is it an investment in getting something so done and if that investment doesn't come through? Or is it something in between? And so, so what is the nature of a Kickstarter donation? Well, 
So I had a job. And because I told everyone, well, I hurt my hand, I had only like one out of the 300 backers complain. Like, because everyone else has to, well, obviously, you can't go because you hurt your hand. Yeah, we've been late a couple of times, but I've always found like just clear communication is the biggest problem. If you're if you're late and people are confused and don't know what's going on, they they get really mad. But if you just tell them what's up and why you're late and when you're going to deliver, people are generally very understanding. That communication is essential. I actually was brought in to advise on a project. I won't say what it was. It was a really good project, and uh, when the person started going public with it. Tweets and Instagram comments like this person just canceled her previous history, her previous Kickstarter even work was a comic book. Um, and the thing was drawn. It was it, it was quick and merciless. I think the conversation around failure is a really important one. And um, I think that sometimes when people overfund and they you know got more than they bargained for, it's like it's you know double-edged sword. Oh my gosh, I overfunded by 10 grand or something, but now I have to, instead of shipping 500 books, I have to ship 1,000 books. And, you know, being able to prepare for success is kind of mm-hmm. an important part of uh, the process, but at the end of the day, being unafraid of communication, being unafraid to admit that you have, in some ways, not met the expectation that you were, that you had sought out to meet, is really important. And like also being able to persevere because you know many people suffer from anxiety and you know myself included and one of the main things you have to tell yourself is this will pass and just keep on going you know what I mean and you will fulfill eventually it's not you can't just say well I gave up you know like it's really important to not give up sorry I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> Is it a legal recourse? Do people like say, you know, your goodwill is not enough? Uh, you know, I know you tried hard, but I want my. Well, remember, uh, in, in, when it comes to legal, there's n- no way to stop somebody from filing a lawsuit. Yeah. I'm saying it's easy to just slide. There's increased risk. Yeah, and lawsuits are possible. It's another reason to have limited liability insurance. Uh, so nothing, nothing can stop that from happening. So I mean, that's why you want to think about all your representations, because those representations, the representation exists to minimize risk. You need to be careful how you promote it on Twitter uh, and Instagram, because I've seen creators make some wild claims, not just when they're selling it, but then when they get delayed, they get very defensive, and they start attacking people, and boy, that does not help. Yeah. Uh, okay, um, right there. I, you right there in the green, and then I'll come.
it was it was just really well organized and it went off without it. You can't do it. It's just like you need to be prepared, you know? Yeah. It's a lot of the first timers uh, who get who burn themselves and it's they don't know how much it costs to reduce, how to take prepared to take something to scale. They just don't know what you know as professionals in the field. Um right here. Yeah. So I can list for Jeff um, specifically there um where would be the best way so I could maybe is there a lot of people that doesn't kind of consult with you do in this mm-hmm. regard that we could kind of their way of somewhere where you go like to find you. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much the consulting fees would cost mm-hmm. but we could you know before we get everything and just get all our ducks in a row. Luckily luckily there are can I just repeat the question yeah, you're the looking question, for the question was are there a lot of people who do this? Mm-hmm. Um I think the people who work in the area of, of there are a number of lawyers who do work with geek culture or with fashion or with publishing, and they have, it's just another area of corporate finance. And I think anybody who's, who's good or experienced is branching out into this, because it's hard to avoid. Everybody's debating this in their business model. Uh, so you want to ask how experienced they are, and then to find out, um, look at their pedigree, look at their clients, that sort of thing. You want to do that kind of due diligence. But uh, there are things you can find. And sometimes you need to find help um, that's free, um, like volunteers for the arts, or like I work with fashion institutes who a project related to any kind of licensing or something that we're in the fashion apparel or, or accessories. We have a free legal clinic that we provide to anybody who does anything connected to fashion, whether it's a designer, marketer, fundraiser, whatever. So you might be able to get a lot of good substantive legal advice for nothing, which is not that thing.
Okay, um, I think we're going to have to wind it up. Miss Tech person in the back? Is that the last question? One more? Okay, okay, we're going to leave it there. Uh, look, thank you so much for coming out. We have a great panel. Can you give them a big round of applause?